welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cully. And this is our regular roundup of the last month, so the month of May. And Simon, it's lovely to be back talking with you. I've not had a chat with you on the podcast for a long, long time. And here we are again. Yeah, it's great to have somebody else to talk to on the monthly roundup, to be honest, because it's always better if we do it together. Rather than just talking into the void of the world of podcasting. It's been a busy month on the blog, but there's a couple of other things I thought we should mention before we start, Simon. First of all, just our thoughts are with our colleagues in East London after what was a pretty horrific attack that's happened just recently. Now, when you listen to this podcast, this may not seem as relevant. Uh, there was an attack on a member of staff at Newham ED, emergency department. And I think we've all been there in departments where we felt under threat. And I'm sad that it took something as extreme as this to encourage action, but it does seem that departments around the country are now mobilizing themselves to make sure staff are safe. So this is really just a call out. Make sure you're safe at work. Make sure you know your procedures for locking down the department. There are some people out there who seem to think it's okay to behave poorly. And of course, we do have some poorly people who also behave in a way that is uh, dangerous to us. So thoughts with our colleagues at Newham and um, much respect to them and their clinical lead, Lisa, who I know does huge amounts of work to look after that department. I think you're right, Ian. It's something we're never going to be able to get away from in the emergency department because we're an open space, we're open to the public, and there are some very difficult and dangerous people out there. But what we can do is lots of things to minimise the risk, to protect the staff and to give them options about how to behave, where to go, what to do in the event of a violent patient being in the emergency department. I think implicit in what you're saying, and I think I'm probably going to agree with you, I don't think there's been as big a focus or as much funding as we require to deal with those in many UK departments. And I think this, if this is a wake-up call, that's not a bad thing. One of the things that made me slightly slouch, I heard about this through personal communication as opposed to online news. So I thought I'd go and look at the BBC website to try and find the obvious article that would be there. And I had to search far and wide to find a couple of paragraphs underneath BBC London subtitled under under to try and find anything about this as if this is okay, as if this is normal. Well, people, this is not normal in the same way that teachers being attacked in schools is not normal. This is unacceptable. And please don't expect that this is part of emergency medicine. And if you're thinking about emergency medicine as a career, please don't let this put you off. Senior colleagues, nurses, your executive will look after you. And it does just show how departments pull together when stuff happens. Um, but yeah, let's not normalize this behavior. Going home and having dinner with your loved one and saying, oh, I got attacked today, just like yesterday. That's not on. And we need to do something about it. Agreed. And particular thoughts to our pre-hospital colleagues who deal with very similar situations, possibly on a more frequent basis and with less resources. So yeah, shout out to them too. And Simon, in the last month or so, you've probably uh, kept this quite quiet, but I understand you've been appointed to a, an official position at the college. This makes you now officially a college person. It obviously limits what you can say. You're not allowed to talk about anything controversial. You are now the CPD lead for the college. You have become part of the establishment, Simon Carley. I thought it would never happen. No, I'm really, really pleased to take on the CPD thing. I think it works well with St. Emlyn's and uh, all the sort of education stuff we've done in the past. It's a really good team, actually. The events team at the college are great. And I think we've got some ideas about shaking a few things up. But I'm, I'm working on the back of what Carol Gavin's done, who's done a fabulous job over the last few years. So really, really excited to uh, to get involved and to bring all the things that we talk about in the social media world into college education. So let's see what happens. Also, a quick shout out to Natalie, who has just become a mum, and to her partner, Ollie. While she was about 36 weeks pregnant, she still managed to 
do some articles on St. Emlyn's and I'm always amazed that uh, people are able to do that. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. So, uh, Natalie, this one's uh, for you. You were talking about second line agents in paediatric status epilepticus. And Simon, I know you know this data pretty well. Yeah, it's an interesting stuff. It's actually two trials, the Eclipse trial and the Concept trial. And basically what both of these were doing is looking at the use of either, and I'll try and say this, but I've been practicing all morning, I still can't get it right, Leviteris Tam, which I'm going to call Kepra for the rest of this podcast. I think this is the only, only agent that you're allowed to call by its trade name. I think you've said it as a proper name, but that, I can't say it either. Kepra is kind of cool. We're going to stick with that. And I know that's not the right thing to do, but let's we're do doing that. that. So Believe Kepra. me, we're doing that. Versus phenytoin. So in the APLS seizure protocols, we basically check blood glucose, manage the airway, the ABCs, and then we give benzodiazepines to try and stop the fits. But that doesn't work for all children, and you have to move on to another agent. And at the moment, the agent that we use as an intravenous agent would be phenytoin. Now, phenytoin is a pretty unpleasant drug. The, it's not easy to draw up. It's quite easy to make errors. I know and have been involved in at least one death of a child due to a phenytoin administration error. So I'm personally quite twitched about it. And then potentially move on to RSI. It takes quite a long time to administer. It's not easy. It's dodgy. So the idea was, could we use Kepra instead? And the two trials, one in the UK, one in Australia. The Eclipse trial is the UK trial. They looked at whether the drugs stopped seizures from the point of randomization. Whereas in the concept trial, they looked at whether or not the child was still fitting five minutes after they'd finished the infusion. Subtle difference. And there are other subtle differences between the trials. I'll break down the bottom line, because if you want to read the detail, you can go and look at Natalie's blog or a number of other blogs around there on things like Don't Forget the Bubbles, which are very good, and go into some of the fine detail. But essentially, Neither of the trials showed statistically or really clinically that there was any particular difference. Now, interestingly, both of these were set up to show that one was better than the other. They've been arguably misinterpreted that the trials show that they're the same. They don't. That's that's a real nerdy statistical thing. But trust, trust me, it's not quite the same. But in essence, we've not really demonstrated a huge difference. And so there's been quite a lot of debate in the literature and quite a lot of debate online about whether or not we should change. Because lots of people are saying, well, you've not made any difference, so why should I change? And other people are going, well, Kepra is probably safer. It probably is. And it's easier to draw up, which it is. And it's easier to calculate, which it is. So we're going to move to Kepra. So I think we're still, interestingly, and we've had this a lot recently, haven't we? Some really good randomized control trials that actually end up delivering us equipoise at the end of them. So my understanding is there are a number of groups around the world who will change to Kepra. I have a personal preference. I think I probably would prefer Kepra, but that is based on my conflict of interest from past very terrible experiences. So that's where we are now. Uh, Read it. And I think expect to change fairly soon. Now, Simon, you mentioned in there being nerdy, and I bet there's some listeners who said, oh, go on, Simon. Go on, just be nerdy. So, Simon, I'm giving you permission. Just be nerdy. We've got colleagues who are doing uh, clinical appraisal exams at the moment. Ken Milne's fabulous at this, and I'd encourage anyone to listen to SGEM. What were the nerdy bits you wanted to mention? I'm giving you license to be nerdy for three minutes. Go. Three minutes. Okay. With no notice about that at all. So basically, if you're trying to design a trial where you're trying to demonstrate a difference between two things, it's quite easy to determine what's different. So you do an analysis on one group, you do an analysis on one, the other group, and you find if there's a statistically significant difference, that is fine. That's not the same as saying things. two things are the same. In the first one, you say, I'll consider this important if there's a 5% difference. When you're looking at whether things are the same, you might say, I will consider these the same if 
there's definitely no worse or no better than 2% or 5%. And the numbers mean that you need a lot more numbers to show equivalence than you do to show difference. Now, again, you can go and have a look at that on Wikipedia or wherever you want, but you just have to be very careful when you're reading these trials that you understand how it was set up and then how it's interpreted. Now, it's not the trial authors that have made the error here, it's the people who've interpreted it. So the, the trials are actually well-designed and well-described, but just be careful when you're listening to equivalence or difference superiority trials. And that's the same as a non-inferiority trial, isn't it, for equivalence, is that correct? Uh, no, that's again, slightly subtly different, but let's not go there today just shows that this is not straightforward and the bottom line isn't always. You have to read the paper, don't you? And, and it's another reason why doing the critical appraisal paper is important. These are skills that you need. So on to the next one. This is Rich Carden. Uh, he's talking about prolonged field care in the emergency department. Rich does have a military, I was going to say background, but it's hard to describe a man who's an actively serving member of the military as having a background in it, isn't it? He is uh, grounded in military medicine. And he's been talking about how we can look after people for prolonged periods in emergency departments. I don't know what Manchester's been like, Simon, but Southampton has appeared to be quite full at times with uh, at times, well, a delay, should we say, in, in getting patients to where they need to be. So this was quite a handy way to think about how we're going to look after our patients. Is this something you would do in Manchester? It is. Unfortunately, we are seeing patients um, held on the corridors quite a lot, um, even not being able to get off trolleys from the ambulance crew even, and then waiting for admissions. Our performance is not great against the four-hour target. We have lots of long waits. So yes, I think this is incredibly relevant. So he describes the Hitman, and this is just an aid memoir. Uh, I guess Hitman, maybe it's from 1980s TV shows or something. I'm not really sure where Rich uh, was inspired to come up with it from, or if in fact he's borrowed it from someone else. But it stands for hygiene and hydration, infection, tubes, medication, analgesia and nutrition. Not that dissimilar to some of the mnemonics you might use on an ITU ward round when you're going around making sure you get all of the systems. We do have core needs. Our patients, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Simon's mentioned that a lot in talks. But in the end, what do we need to do for our patients? We need to make sure that they have decency wherever they're being cared for, uh, that they've got a pain control. I never quite understand why patients come to us in pain and we don't manage to sort that one problem out. We manage to ask them about everything else but we don't end up giving them pain relief. I'm never quite sure why, but that's a priority. And then double checking that as they've been with us a period of time, they're not getting worse. We would hope most patients are going to get better, but there are people who can deteriorate on a corridor and we can't miss them. And we have to help our nursing team and work together to make sure we look after these patients. Once you've seen them and you've made a referral plan, they're still your responsibility, I believe, until they leave your department. So you've got to keep an eye on your patients. And also the thing that we're not used to is prescribing second doses of stuff. You've got to remember to do that. There'll be times when you need a second dose of analgesia, a second dose of antibiotic, because you've got patients with you for longer than we've been used to. Does that sound fair, Simon? It does. And I think in some departments, when it does get busy, they will allocate specific members of staff to do that. And I know that when, for instance, if we can't get the patients off the ambulance trolleys, I do get a senior clinician to go around and just check that they're okay. Uh, we have quite a good rapid assessment system in Manchester, which does that. If you don't, then you really need to think about it at times of crisis. And again, I think the second dose thing is really important. And I'm sure you've seen and been involved in incidents where patients haven't had their second doses and things haven't gone necessarily as well as they could have done. And we're always interested in the here and now and what's wrong with the patient today. But often they'll have background illnesses that will need their medication prescribing for them. It's not that important if they miss a dose of antihypertensive, but it is important if they miss a dose of their anti-Parkinson's drugs. 
It is our responsibility. Please don't believe you can offload this because you've just made a referral. They're still your patient, is my belief. They're in our department. We should be looking after them. Interesting you mentioned Parkinson drugs. We've got Matt King, who's working with us as an ED pharmacist, one of the best things we've ever done. And he always says there is a special place in hell for people who do not prescribe anti-Parkinson drugs because the morbidity that, that leads on from that, particularly for a patient who's got something like pneumonia, is just awful. These are life-changing and significant morbidity and sometimes mortality issues. It's really important that we get on top of it. So that's prolonged field care as described by Rich Carden in our emergency departments. We then talked a bit about, or Simon, you did a a blog post about AF in the emergency department. Yeah, so gosh, this is one of those ones that sort of makes me think my practice is going backwards and forwards all the time. I've always been interested in AF. We see quite a lot of it in the ED. We see quite a lot of it in young people in Manchester for various reasons, drugs and alcohol. Thank you. And I've always been a bit keen on cardioversing them. The DC cardioversion in the ED, somebody who comes in with atrial fibrillation, you can get it done. You know it's going to be sorted. Getting them back into sinus rhythm seems like the right thing to do. And I've always been an advocate, I think almost certainly on the work of Ian Steele and the Canadian groups, of, of cardioversion. But there are those patients who come in. So say you get somebody who comes in at sort of eight, nine o'clock on a Friday evening. The department's going like a chippy. And you think, you know, I could probably sedate and, and shock this patient now, but in reality, we're, we're a bit too busy. What I'll do is I'll give them some um, flecainide, for instance, and see if they'll cardiovert by the morning. And if not, then we'll, you'll, you know, they can get the cardioverted on cardiology. And that's fine. But I've always wondered whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing to do. So there's an interesting paper um, in New England Journal of Medicine where they adopted two approaches to this group of patients. So say patient comes in, they're in AF, they're, they're suitable for DC cardioversion, so they haven't got a major contraindication. Um, so it's a new onset thing. And they've either said, okay, well, we'll watch and wait. And if they haven't cardioverted themselves or, or by um, pharmacological means within 48 hours, we'll DC cardiovert them, or we'll go straight for a DC cardioversion. Now, in the paper, they showed that in patients who were presenting to the ED with this, a wait and see approach was non-inferior, we're back to non-inferior trials again, and it's a well-designed one, to earlier cardioversion. But their outcome was whether or not they're in sinus rhythm at four weeks. Now, for me, that's kind of interesting. Yes, it's important. But what I'm most interested in is whether or not if we watch them and, and, and see what happens, whether they just spontaneously cardiovert. And to me, that was the big finding in this study is that 69% of the patients went back into sinus rhythm without the need for a DC shock, which means I've possibly been a little bit enthusiastic with the DC shocks. Well, enthusiastic, but on the other hand, trying to get your patient out of which I think must be uncomfortable. I've never had AF, touch wood, just yet. Um, I have had occasional periods of tachycardia, which seem to be Diet Coke related, but even those made me feel uncomfortable. And I think if you've gone into AF and you weren't used to it, that can't be a huge amount of fun. And I guess maybe does this come down to shared decision making again? These patients are generally GCS 15. You're able to have a conversation with them. You can have a chat with them about how they feel. Do they want to wait? Do they want you to crack on? You can explain the potential harms and benefits of a procedure and make a decision together. And that might be one thing we can do. And probably that's the thing we should be doing with most things with patients who are able to comprehend what we want to talk to them about. I actually asked on Twitter about whether there was any other reasons why early cardioversion might be better than allowing it to go on for a while. I got a very, very complicated answer from a cardiologist that involved things called channels and ions, and I didn't understand it. I'm sorry. 
But there are people out there who would consider that an earlier you cardiovert them, the better it is. And that's fine. And I was also watching some slides that were coming out of the International Conference of Emergency Medicine, which is currently taking place in Korea. And it was Ian Steele again. And he's still advocating for very early cardioversion. Just get on with it. Don't refer to cardiology. Don't do troponin. Just get on with it. Get the patient home. Uh, do a CHADS score if they need anticoagulation. Just get on with it. So I, I need to follow up with him and maybe look and see if there's any other commentaries that he's got on this paper because he internationally is the expert on ED management of AF. So an interesting one. I don't think it's actually going to radically change my practice. I think your idea of having a shared conversation is absolutely the right thing to do. And to contradict myself, if I go into AF, you can sedate me, Ian. You can sedate me and shock me. I'm fine. Oh, okay. Um, any other times I can do that? I've been tempted in the past, but uh, <laughs> I'll, che I'll check your pulse yeah. every time I'm, I'm feeling the need to try and do that. Um, that would be nice. You did a journal club post and podcast on this old chestnut of traumatic cardiac arrest and chest compressions. This is something that seems to keep coming around, and there's a little bit of uh, those of people who believe they know about trauma more compared to those who, well, they think don't. Uh, where do you stand on this chest compressions in traumatic cardiac arrest now after the things that you've done? And, and I do have to say, Simon, is this the first time we've done a blog post on a, a trial that's involved pigs? Is it? It is the first porcine blog post, yes. It's, it's probably the best evidence we've got out there at the moment with Jason Smith from Plymouth. Um, I read the blog post, have a listen to the, the other podcast. It'll give you the detail behind it. My take on this is that if you have a patient in whom you are assured that the reason for their cardiac arrest is hypovolemic traumatic cardiac arrest, then chest compressions almost certainly are no use and are probably harmful. Now, the key there and where I think a lot of people have got um, mistakes in their head is if it's hypovolemic traumatic cardiac arrest. And we know that there are other reasons why you might be in traumatic cardiac arrest which are not due to hypervolemia. So impact brain apnea, spinal shock. Um, you may have had an MI before you crashed your car. And in all of those situations, then you need to do the chest compressions. And similarly, the evidence here is for patients who are in PA. We don't really know what we should be doing in that patient who's got asystole. So there are still caveats out there. But for me, if somebody's been stabbed and there's loads of red stuff on the floor and they're hypovolemic and they're white, you know, and they're completely shocked and pale and all of those things, then chest compressions is not the way to go. You need to fill the patient up with fluid. Then that was my take home. The biggest challenge I think with all of this is communicating to the entire team what you're doing and why that's happening. So there will be people in your team who are not aware of the literature, who believe because they've been to ALS or BLS or whatever they've LS they've done, that chest compressions is what you do when a heart stops. And when you as a team leader tell the team you don't need to do chest compressions, there will be at least one person in that room who takes a gasp in and wants to say, what do you think you're doing? You're killing somebody. And I think that is the hardest bit. And there have been times when I have let chest compressions continue in a patient in whom I thought we were unlikely to get any positive outcome to help manage the emotional distress of the team. Because I just feel that sometimes it is too much in that situation to say, by the way, we're not going to do chest compressions because we don't think it works. And this is the reason why, because you're doing too many other things. And handling it in a debrief may work, but there are times when that, for me, is the most challenging thing. Because if we're absolutely honest, this is a, a small subgroup of survivors of this group who have been traumatically damaged and are now in cardiac arrest. And actually, sometimes it's about looking after the team as much as it is about looking after the patient. 
Thanks, a fair shout. The, the other thing I would say that came out of this, and it was also our experience here in Manchester, is we are definitely seeing survivors from traumatic cardiac arrest now in a way which I don't think we were doing five years ago. So the other aspect of this is this is not a futile group of patients in whom we shouldn't do everything possible. There are significant numbers of survivors out there now, and many with you know pretty good neurological output as well. So yeah, don't give up. And I don't want to make our ICU colleagues shout into their uh, mobile phone device or their computer, but what have you got to lose sometimes? You know, you either do something or the patient dies. And if you do something, they might die too. The, the outcome is it's either this or you die. So it is worth trying and seeing what you can do. And having those, it, you can protocolize it. You can make it so it's a boom, 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 we do this, this, and this. But just make sure you look after that nursing assistant in the corner who on her induction day was told to do chest compressions on dead people and doesn't quite understand why it is that you've chosen not to do this on this 25-year-old young man who through no fault of his own got a stab wound to the heart. Absolutely. There's a quick blog post then about the podcast I did with Liz about well-being for the broken. And I would encourage you to go and read Liz's writing and also listen to the podcast. It was great to be talking to Liz again. She's got so many good things to say. And well-being for me has become a little bit of a, I'm a bit tired of hearing about well-being, to be honest. I shouldn't say that, but I am. It's become a bit trendy. Um, And I just want to encourage people to look after themselves. Hopefully, institutions are starting to do more too. And hopefully, this bandwagon is off and running. But uh, the number of conferences where there's so many times dedicated to wellness and well-being, I'm starting to tire of it. And maybe that's the wrong reaction by me. But I don't know if that's universal. I don't know how you feel, Simon. I think it's a really important part of practice, but we need to make sure that we point the efforts at the right thing in that if the systems are broken, then there's no amount of yoga and uh, reflection that's going to make you better. We actually need to make sure that by improving well-being, we're improving the working lives and the environments. I mean, going back to the thing about Newham, uh, making sure that people are actually safe and supported in the workplace. And I think some of the work on well-being has been directed at you're not resilient enough. It's an individual problem. If you were just a bit tougher, it wouldn't be a problem. And actually that's wrong. You know, we all exist in a system and it's the system which is putting people under pressure. So I'm happy for it to be discussed, but I think we need tangible, achievable, supported, financed, resourced solutions to it, which are not just aimed at the individual. It is completely a system issue, I believe. And there are individuals who'll be more susceptible to these things. Of course there are, but the system has to sort itself out. I've had a shift recently in the emergency department where I felt utterly helpless. For the first time in a long time, I felt that uh, not compassion fatigue, but that inability to affect any kind of goodness because I was just surrounded by trolleys and patients. And that wasn't entirely my fault. That was because of a system that is struggling and I don't quite understand. It's June. June's supposed to be a good month for emergency departments. I'm not really sure why it is that things are getting worse. I've tried to think a lot about it, but I think this is a picture from across the country. This isn't local to my hospital or your hospital. For some reason, emergency medicine is becoming overwhelmed. And at some point, the system is going to have to do something about it because you're going to start losing people and hopefully losing people because they move on to other jobs rather than other things that are more tragic. But we have seen things like that too. So this system needs to take it on board. Uh, And frankly, if one of the 
candidates for the Tory party leadership could mention system changes, I'd probably be more uh, akin to wanting to think about voting for them if I were a Tory member, which I hasten to add I am not. Let's move on. Yeah, no politics. Let's stick away from that. A bit of virtual reality. So I was at Smack recently and uh, I saw Jesse Spur do a really interesting talk about virtual reality in medicine. And one of the things he was talking about there was the use of virtual reality for burns patients and dressings. I thought it was really interesting because we have similar things in the ED, do we? don't we? We do painful procedures on people and whether or not virtual reality could help. And so Nats reviewed a paper where there was actually an RCT which, had, which involved two studies within it, one of which was based in the ED. And they basically had a virtual reality game for children, which is based on an aquarium. You had to do things with fish, which you couldn't quite understand. But basically, there's a, it's a significant distraction technique. And they compared that with not normal care, which still involved distraction techniques, and showed that the distress that the children had during their painful procedures was much less if they were on the virtual reality. And these days, you can get a little cardboard box, chuck your phone in the front of it, and generate virtual reality environments very quickly. You don't need lots of sort of fa- fancy kit to do this. So I just wondered if this is something which we may well see coming on over the next few years. And I won't have to listen to many more Peppa Pig videos um, off an iPad whilst I'm doing cannulation, and, and maybe the children will be doing something a little bit more active and involved in a virtual reality environment. Simon, firstly, I think Peppa Pig deserves a better shout out than that. Daddy Pig has been a hero of mine for some time. And also, isn't this just the modern version of Bubbles? Isn't this what this is? Isn't uh, Don't forget the bubbles, which I know you're speaking at very soon. That was, you know, we need bubbles for children. Is this not just a, a very fancy way of having a bottle of bubbles? I think bubbles is a good example, actually, because bubbles, when you blow, I can't believe we're having this conversation, when bubbles when you blow them is an interactive thing. You can pop them, you can blow them, you can move them around. Whereas many of the other devices for distraction have been sort of relatively passive watching Peppa Pig, for instance. I think this is another part of the armamentarium about distraction and putting children into a different place. I think immersing people in a virtual reality environment is probably different because it's actually taking you out of where I think I am now into a completely different place. So there might be some difference in it, although I'm not um, skilled enough or wise enough to talk about the intricacies of that. But I just thought it's interesting. I think this is something that we will will certainly see and and could be potentially useful, not just in children, but potentially even in adults. I'm not sure if you've ever had a go with um, virtual reality. It's a hoot. There are now some places around the UK where you can go in and do virtual reality games. I did it with my kids recently. It was just such fun. I have been on a roller coaster and was amazed at how engaged I was in just, it was a cardboard box on a mobile phone. Who knew? Um, Finally, Simon, let's talk about you. Why not? The power of peer review. This is your smack talk uh, and something you've talked a lot about over the last few years, really. Tell us a bit about that blog post and and how it came about that you wanted to talk about it at the final smack. I think it came about because we were talking about, I suppose, the isolation of many of us in practice. And I think this is particularly the case for more senior doctors. So I ask people, you know, as trainees, when was the last time somebody observed you do something? How do you know you're any good? Uh, how do you know you're progressing? And they'll say things like workplace-based assessments. I have exams. I have annual appraisal. There's always a consultant round. I can ask them. They can watch me do things and then we can get taught. And at my stage in of life now, I've realized very much that, <sighs> do you know what? People don't do that. I'm an independent practitioner within a team. For many people, ask them when was the last time that somebody actually watched what you do and gave you feedback on it. And for many consultants, that will be months, years, or in some cases, even decades. Now, that's important because there is evidence that your performance as a clinician declines over time. 
And that's really interesting. And when I say declines over time in performance, I'm talking about mortality rates for your patients. And I think that part of that is due to us not keeping up to date and to not have people observe our practice. Different in other specialties like surgery where you get more observation, but in our world where you're often the only senior doctor on, that's a worry. But more than that, if you go back to the trainees, a lot of those things I talked about are a little bit summative. You know, they're, 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 they are assessments. And whenever you go into an assessment process, you don't feel that you're able to have the open, easy conversations that are, would help you develop and develop judgment. And so I think this is something we can all do. It just, at its very basic level, just means I'm going to do something, whatever it is, an examination, take history, do a procedure. I'm going to get somebody to come in and watch me and give me feedback, developmental feedback. Oh, and th the other thing, the reason why we started thinking about doing this at the beginning was around trauma team leaders, because the nurses told us that our practice was very different and we wanted to calibrate it and get it back on track. So we had a similarity between how we did things. So we started doing a bit of this and it was interesting. The original idea was that the person who was being watched would improve. What we found is the person who was being watched, yeah, sure, they get something out of it and they do, but it's the person who's doing the watching who gets the most. They've got loads of bandwidth. They can see what's going on. They've got time to think. It's a two-way process. Everybody learns out of this. It's cheap. You can do it tomorrow. It takes virtually no time. Why don't we do it more? Well, I think I know why we don't do it more. Uh, and that's because it's confronting. And actually, everyone will say to you, if you ask any consultant colleague, oh, do you like feedback? I say, oh, I love feedback. Love feedback. Yeah, yeah. What they mean is they like good feedback. The majority of people do not want to hear that they can do things better, especially when being told by people who they would see as subordinate to them or people who they view as not being as good as them. And these biases all exist. And when you reach consultant level, it's hugely brave and challenging to ask somebody. Imagine asking a trainee to watch you doing a examination. How brave would that trainee have to be to say, oh, by the way, I didn't think you did that very well. And as consultants, we have to get better at this. You cannot have my career. If I keep going till 65 as a consultant will last over 30 years. If I don't have somebody watch me at some point in that time, then by every chance I'm going to take shortcuts. I'm going to found quick ways around things and I won't be as good as I could be, but I don't think it's easy. And I think it's really hard. You've got to have a really cohesive team in order to want to do that. I know at Manchester you've got many colleagues who are on board with that sort of thing, but I think there'll be other departments where colleagues would run a million miles before they have that done. I think it's different in trauma. That's okay because that's a divine, defined set of skills. You've got to do this, 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 and this. But when it's a bit more artified, it's a bit more in the individual's expression of how they do medicine. I think that's really, really challenging. So I don't underestimate the challenge you're putting out to people to ask them to do that. I think it is a challenge. I think you can actually use this to change the culture in your departments. So if you show and you demonstrate and you take a leadership by doing this and accepting that people are going to do it to you, that's a good thing. If you set it up as I am judging whether you're right or wrong, then this won't work. You have to set it up such that where the questions people are asking is not what happened, although you have to know what happened, but why that happened. So why did you make those decisions? It's process, not outcome a lot of the time. And that's about having a grown-up conversation between people. I, I personally think if we don't do this, we will not achieve our potential. You've struck on one point there, which is about the debrief afterwards. And everyone talks about simulation and how great simulation is. Simulation's fine, but it's the debrief which is the absolute most important bit. 
And I think actually for all the training we do of people in simulation, if we could train people in how to debrief, how to communicate, how to can pass those messages on in a way that's constructive and not destructive, that would be a real move forward. I'd agree. Simon, that is May. Thank you so much for talking to me again. It's so nice to be back doing this with you. Lots of content from St. Emlyn's. Encourage you all, there's loads of FOMED around at the moment. Encourage you to go out and discover all the other sites as well. Proud that for Simon and Rick and the team at St. Emlyn's, we were there at the beginning and it's been a joy to watch this explosion of FOMED across the internet. And we're glad that you're still with us these years down the line. Really looking forward to chatting again about June's content. It's still being written. It's still being put on the blog post. Hopefully you're having a more enjoyable summer now that perhaps winter has passed, the 11-month winter of the emergency department. And we'll see you again at the end of next month for another discussion about this in Emlyn's blog and podcast. Mm-hmm.